Hello, this is Robert here at R&R Podcast, brought to you by Successful New Life. I'm here with Ellen Carpenter again. Um, the last interview went so well, we figured we'd go more in-depth into his story, as promised in the last interview. Hey, Ellen, how are you? I'm Dandy. Thank you, Robert. Yeah. <laughs> Dandy Spandy, well, actually. Of course. Well, I mean, today's uh, Valentine's Day, as you know, um, and so it's kind of funny, and we're going into something that's, you know, a little off topic from that, but <laughs> but all the same inspirational and hopefully um, inspirational to our listeners and everybody involved. Um, today, we're going to be going to the life lessons from the Pacific Crest Trail. And this story is what I've heard from Ellen originally and how we actually met, where he was giving this speech and everything, which he goes around the United States giving um pertaining to uh his hike and life-threatening experience on his on day 58 of his hike actually um ellen had survived the mishap through kind of grit and willpower alone you know and you know obviously keeping his wits about him uh he survived the mishap and returned to the trail the following year and completed his 2660 mile long journey all the way from mexico to canada and as you may guess, hiking that far provided lots of opportunities for personal growth for Alan. Today, Alan will share several powerful, hard-earned life lessons he learned from his time on the trail. Uh, Alan does assure us that we don't have to hike from Mexico to Canada to apply <laughs> these life lessons to our lives. Alan, welcome back to the show. Well, thank you, Robert. It's great to be here. Yeah. Well, last time, you know, we kind of we kind of skimmed the surface of a bunch of experiences that you had and everything. And now we're going to dive a little deeper, right? That's right. Yes. That's wonderful. Well, without further ado, I'd love to get started. So um, it seems like that accident that you experienced in California. Well, for one, can we kind of review the whole accident? Uh, we know that you had been climbing and yeah. you'd been by yourself, correct? That's right, yes. Most of the time I hike by myself, which is typical of Pacific Crest Trail hikers. But uh, uh, commonly on the trail, people um, form loosely knit groups and tend to camp together more than hike together and show up in town together and spend time together otherwise. But anyway, I hike mostly by myself. And as it turned out that on the 58th day of this hike, I had arrived at approximately mile 1067 on the Pacific Crest Trail. <clears throat> and the, the thing that was really foremost in my mind was hunger. The deal is we, we only since hikers just can't carry enough food to compensate for the 5,000 calories we burn up every day. So we rely on going into town every so often to just gorge ourselves. <clears throat> so on, <clears throat> on that morning, actually, I was operating on 100% hunger mode, <clears throat> which seems kind of weird, but that's how it was. So it turns out I came to the stretch of icy trail on the north side of Mount Raymond in the McCullough Wilderness. Uh, for those of your listeners who don't know where that is, that's about maybe 30 air miles south of South Lake Tahoe in California. So I, when I got to the trail, 
I stopped because I couldn't see the trail. The ice totally obliterated it. And at that point, the mountains, the trail itself was fairly flat, but the mountainside was extremely steep. I took one step out on the icy trail and looked down and I realized if I slipped that I'd sail down this icy chute for maybe a hundred feet into a bunch of boulders. So I, I prudently took a step backwards on the icy trail. And at that point, I really could have, and what I should have done in retrospect, was to simply turn around and walk backwards for quarter mile, half a mile, something like that, and find a way to go down and around or up and over this um, icy spot. That, that would have been the sensible thing to do. I, mean, I could have also just sat there by the trail and waited. It was a nice morning and waited for some hiker to show up with a pair of crampons or yak tracks or something like that, that he or she could lend me to get across the icy spot. But I did neither of those things because my ravenous hunger hijacked my conscious mind. And like a zombie, I I just started to walk across that ice. And I took a step and then another step and I slipped. And I remember when I fell, the, what, what went through my mind was, uh-oh, <laughs> as if it just dawned on me <clears throat> that I was in a tough situation. Yeah, so can you go a little more in depth? I know that we didn't do it last time, but I know that you sustained heavy injury, right, from your fall? Uh, I have no uh, memory of how I got down to the bottom of that icy gully. Is oh, I think w- when I slammed into this boulder, I hit so hard on the right side of my rib cage that it just knocked me senseless. Uh, so th- at some point, I, I actually woke up and I realized I wasn't dead, which was really nice. <laughs> yes, I'm not dead. I'm alive. I, I tried to stand up, but, but I couldn't. I just fell back down. It, it felt like I'd been run over by a bus. I, everything hurt. Oh, goodness. You had a number I, of injuries, right? Like including... I, I did. I, I didn't know at the time what was ailing me, but I thought something was seriously wrong here. And for, for one thing, I just the right side of my chest just was killing me. It hurt so much. I could barely breathe. Most of the skin on my forearms and shins and elbows was gone it was scraped clean by the ice and then i I noticed that there was blood spurting from a oh maybe a golf ball sized hole in my leg that i guess some chunk of ice had ripped off and and i said well hmm, this is not good (laughs) what do i do now (laughs) and and it was really at that point that that I made a crucial and literally a life decision. And that is, I am going to survive. And then I made a plan. The plan was to stop the bleeding from the hole in my leg and then crawl out of the icy gully up onto the actual rock and crawl up this really steep mountainside that was littered with these roundish and angular walnut-sized stones. It was just... It was just way too steep, but I just decided I'm going to crawl back up and that's all there is to it. So I started inching my way uphill. And each time I did that, I had to press my bloody 
uh, forearms and shins and knees just hard into the rock so I wasn't slide back downhill or, or tip over backwards. And it was just excruciating how much that hurt. But I, I just kept going. I kept going. <clears throat> and at one point, I found this really wonderful handhold rock stuck in the mountainside. And I tugged on it just to make sure it was secure. And it was. So I pulled really hard. And, and the rock came loose. And I started to tip over backwards. And I thought, this is it. My life flashed in front of my eyes, and I thought, well, so long. But fortunately, I had the presence of mind to hang onto the rock and push it back into the mountainside, and I sprawled forward. Once I recovered from that, I kept crawling up the hillside, and after maybe an hour of that, I suppose, I hauled my aching body up on the trail and just keeled over. And there was, I was so tired and so beat up, I just couldn't do anything. Plus, my mind was in a really deranged kind of place. So I just lay there. I didn't do anything for a couple of hours, I think. And then finally, my hind cleared a little bit, and I sat up and looked around, and I realized that maybe 75, 80 feet before where I'd fallen, there was a little rise. I thought, well, why don't I crawl back up there and look over and see what I can see? So I, so I crawled back up there and looked over, and it turned out I could see a long ways out to the east. And I thought, oh, maybe there's a cell phone tower out there somewhere. <laughs> I was so pumped. But wait a minute. I was in a wilderness area in the middle of nowhere, and I hadn't had a cell phone signal for a week. There's not going to be a cell phone tower out there. But, you know, what did I have to lose? Well, it turns out that when I ran into the boulder, it was on my the right side of my chest. And my cell phone was in my left side breast pocket. I, I pulled it out and looked at it, and it looked like it was okay. It hadn't been damaged. And and I I realized I had just a little bit of juice left. And then I realized I had two bars of service. Oh, I just about went into a spasm. Oh, I was so excited. And I it was all I could do just to calm down, hold the phone, and punch in 911. And I, as I was holding the phone up to my ear, I just mouthed the words, please, please please oh and then a woman answered the phone oh and the tears just streamed down my face when i heard her sweet voice oh that was i think the greatest moment in my entire life right there well <laughs> it, it, it it was a really interesting experience being on the phone with this gal I was very peaceful and calm, and I said, my name is Alan Carpenter. I'm a 66-year-old white male. I'm on the Pacific Crest Trail on the north side of Mount Raymond in the McCullough Wilderness around mile 1067. I'm hurt. I can't walk. And then the woman said, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just I kind of didn't know what to do. 
what do you mean you don't know what I'm talking about? She said, I don't have any idea where you are, who you are, or what you're talking about. So I, I repeated this whole thing. And as I was doing that, the phone connection died. Oh, I was bummed. Oh, no. I thought, oh, man. So I call her back, and, and I get the same person. And I don't have the mental wherewithal to say, look, uh, could I talk to your supervisor, please? This conversation isn't working. No, I, I, I didn't have the brains to do that. And, and I started repeating my story, and the phone connection died again. Oh, and I said, oh no, oh, no. And I thought, here I am. I'm going to expire on the trail with my cell phone gripped in my hand, put up to my head, connected to the 911 number because I, I can't communicate where I am. I call back again. And the woman said, well, I'll tell you what, do you, do you happen to have any maps with you? And I said, yeah. I, I got them out and she said, well, can you tell me where you are with those maps? And I thought, ah, the maps have GPS ticks on the margins. So I read her off the GPS coordinates and I said, is that gonna work for you? And she said, yes. Oh. And in 45 minutes, I got the first helicopter ride of my life. Thank goodness. How long was that 45 minutes? Was it a long time? Did it fly by, you know? <laughs> it was, um, I, you know, I honestly was very peaceful about all this because GPS ticks are very accurate. And uh, I was pretty confident in my relating of those numbers to the woman on the phone, even though she was sort of incompetent dealing with me otherwise. But it turns out that uh, when I heard the helicopter, I heard the WAP, um, I had this old bandana that I'd found. So I was there lying there waving the bandana around. And those guys just found me right on the money. Wow. Well, so, you're lucky enough to be in a spot where a helicopter can land as well, huh? Well, as it turns out, um, I thought it was way too steep to land. I mean, this was 60 degree slope or something like that. And I thought, if they try to land, they're going to hit the rotor on the side of the cliff and we're all going to be dead. Well, uh, so the so the pilot in the helicopter circles around and just starts losing elevation. And I think what they want to do is just confirm that I was alive so that this was going to be a rescue and not a recovery. <laughs> and I thought, well, they're going to fly off someplace and land. And then one of the purpose, persons is going to walk back and see how I'm doing. Well, then I hear in the bullhorn, take cover. We're going to land. And I thought, wait a minute, you can't land here. And so I'm lying on the trail, waving at these guys, telling them, don't land, don't land, don't do this. Of course, they can't hear me. <laughs> and they might have wondered why I was thrashing around down there. <laughs> because what was going through my mind was a story that a friend of mine in graduate school told me. When he was a wilderness ranger up in the Beartooth Mountains in uh, Wyoming and Montana, Similar situation. A woman got in trouble. The helicopter came out to rescue her. They tried to pick her up off a steep mountainside. The helicopter crashed, killed the pilot, the co-pilot, and the woman on the ground. Oh, my goodness. And I thought, this is what's going to happen to me. Oh, brother. But what I didn't realize is that there was a maybe a refrigerator-sized boulder lying sideways. And part of it was sticking out of the hillside maybe, I don't know, 50 feet from where I was lying on the trail. And this guy, the pilot, 
put one of his skids on the edge of that rock. The other skid was out in the air. And he kept the rotors going absolutely full blast so they wouldn't flop down and clip the hillside. And as I'm looking at that, I think, I can't believe this. This is actually happening. And then the co-pilot hops out of the helicopter and runs over and says, are you Alan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says, come on, let's go. And I said, well, I I can't. I can't walk. He said, well, okay. So he's this big strapping guy. And he uh, picks me up and hauls me over the helicopter and tosses me inside. And we take off. And it was just the most beautiful ride in the world. It was so, the air was so calm. And then every once in a while, the pain would overwhelm me and I just would kind of black out. And then I'd wake up again and look at the helicopter. It was it was the most amazing experience of overwhelming pain and beauty all rolled into one. But I, I got to the hospital in Nevada and Reno and they took great care of me. And the doctor said, you know what, buddy, you're going home and you're going to take it easy for two months. <laughs> And oh, my dream of hiking the entire trail just evaporated. It was so discouraging for me. But I was happy to be alive. My wife came out and rescued me. Uh, They wouldn't let me fly home uh, on the airplane. So we rented a car and she drove me back to Colorado. And I, I sat on the couch and I whined and complained. It was really pathetic. Uh, but fortunately, I had the, again, the wherewithal. I don't know how this happened exactly, but I realized that this really wasn't working for me. You know, it certainly wasn't working for my wife. And and somehow, I think my guardian angel showed up somehow, and I realized I don't have to act this way. I don't have to whine and complain. I'm somehow going to find the good in this situation. I didn't know what it was, but I... I said, I'm going to do this. And then it didn't take long. I don't know, another week or something. And I realized, ah, I had taken my life for granted. And sitting on the couch made me realize how important it was to me to actually be able to go out and hike and ride my bike and just walk our family dog for heaven's sakes. And that motivated me to rejuvenate my life. And that's what I've been working on for the past gosh uh, five and a half years now so you think that that life uh life infringing accident that you experienced there actually turned out kind of to be an opportunity for personal growth right it was i never would have guessed that i probably have heard i've probably heard of people being in that situation but i i didn't think it applied to me but that's what happened yes and it, it it was weird, but it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. Because I don't think I would have been motivated to rejuvenate my life had I not been in that accident. I mean, not that my life was bad or anything. It was a wonderful life in many respects. But I realized it can be even more wonderful and be even one, more great. And that's what I've attempted to do over the past five and a half years. How about that? That's wonderful. So in order, you know, when you go through an experience like that and you have to kind of fight to survive, right? Um, yeah. It seemed that marshalling your inner strength kind of saved your life. Is that kind of how you see it? 
Exactly. Yes. Uh, I, I had heard of stories of little old ladies or like a mom who's um, picks the car, the car up off of her son is working under the car and it slips off the jack. She goes outside and sees this, pulls the car up, the kid gets out. And I thought, oh, come on, that just can't happen. Well, I think stuff like that can happen, actually, <laughs> because each of us has this deep well of inner strength. But but most of us, including me, uh, didn't or don't realize that we have that inner strength. The trick is, I think, to marshal that inner strength. And once we do that, then we're able to do all these things that we didn't think we could do. Like, for example, I, I didn't. When I went back to the trail the next year in 2014, I looked down that slope. In 2014, there wasn't any ice. So I looked down there and I thought, that is so steep. And I must have been going so fast when I slammed into this boulder. How did I survive that? I did. And then I, I looked up that mountainside and I thought, how could, as hurt as I was, how could I have crawled back up there? But I did. It just kind of seems to defy rational explanation. And I think the idea is that each of us has this deep well of inner strength. And if we can marshal that inner strength, we can overcome, I think, just about any adversity that we encounter in our lives. Why? What could be better than that? That is funny. And... You know, well, I'd say it's funny that you went off the trail, right? Because that, that spot wasn't exactly on the trail, right? And you went back to that spot, which most people, you know, after experiencing something like that, wouldn't go to the scene of the crime, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it was important for me to do that. It's kind of like if you fall off the horse and you get hurt, you got to get back on the horse, no matter what the horse is. And so I had to go back there and I had to make sure that I could deal with it and process that whole experience emotionally some more. I'd done a lot of that in the year after my accident, but it was important for me to go back and say, yep, yep, I survived that. I marshaled that inner strength and I was able to live. And, and it, it, was, it was interesting. I, I wasn't afraid. And I wasn't scared. It was more a kind of peacefulness that somehow I managed to have. That's amazing. Now, you had mentioned kind of a deep well of inner strength, right? Mentioning those ladies yeah. that lifted the cars or you having to drag your body while you're, you know, bleeding. You know, yeah. And everything to a safe spot with cell phone reception. Um, do you think that most people routinely tap into this deep well of inner strength and do you now? Uh, I don't think most people do uh, because, you know, we get, we're living our life and things are going along and life's okay. It's maybe not too bad or it's even great for us. But I suspect that most of the time we don't tap into that inner strength. And I think part of the reason for that is that most of us, myself included, have self-imposed limitations in our mind that we cart around that are, are really not true. We think, oh, I can't do that. I could never do that. 
Like I, I suspect that many of the listeners right now would think I could never hike the Pacific Crest Trail. There's no way I could do that. Well, I disagree. You, you may not realize this, but the youngest person that ever hiked the entire length of the Pacific Crest Trail in one year was 10 years old. 10. 10. And, and one time when I was hiking the Colorado Trail, I met a guy who was 78 who was hiking the whole thing. So those experiences have taught me that over the years, I've managed to start jettisoning many of these self-imposed limitations that I have. I haven't managed to get rid of all of them yet, but that's one thing I now realize that if I feel like I can't really do something or I don't know how to do something or I start feeling sorry for myself, I think, no, Alan, you can do this. You just haven't quite figured out yet the how to marshal that inner strength that you've got and to really make it happen. That's wonderful. And it's a wonderful message, you know. Um, And, you know, it kind of leads into my next question. As people, you know, face different challenges in their lives, they have kind of two two choices in every situation, right? Just as you were faced in an unforeseen challenge, right, where you slipped and then you woke up on the ground essentially you know way you know kind of disoriented and at the bottom of the mountain you know and you had a choice you could have just laid there and given up and you know just let whatever happened happen or you could have what you chose to do take control of the situation despite all odds and push through and develop yourself and kind of harness your inner strength and save your own life right now do you believe that uh when people face challenges and are challenged more they grow as people and as a result you know they get better results out of life as a whole well i think we can make better choices whether we do or not is another matter Mm -hmm. but i think the realization in any situation that we have a choice is really a powerful realization. And here's just a great example. Um, When, for, gosh, I don't know how many decades, when I was out driving my car, and if somebody would cut me off or do something that really wasn't courteous as a driver, I would get mad at the other driver. And I'd sometimes shake my fist and uh, be in the car and say words I shouldn't be saying and just sort of feel, feel all agitated. And I didn't realize then, though, that was a choice. But since I've grown up a little bit, I realized, well, I don't have to react that way. I can think something like, hmm, boy, that person is in a big hurry. I wonder what that's all about. So that it's calm and peaceful. Maybe that person's uh, just got the message that her or his uh, spouse is in the hospital and is racing to the hospital. or Whatever it is. But I realize I have a choice and I don't need to get wound up about other people who are uh, driving in a inconsiderate fashion. I can just let it go. And that's been a really powerful thing for me. And now I don't get wound up about people who make stupid decisions while they're driving. It's just a complete non-issue for me anymore. And that's wonderful. And I think this is true for almost everything in our life. Like if somebody insults us, 
We don't have to get wound up. We can just say, hmm, I wonder what that's all about. I wonder if that person had a fight with his wife and he's just kind of taking this out on me or, or whatever. And, and really, the, the nut of all this is that the things that happen to us in our life are not as important as the way we respond to them. That is really the important part. And if we can maintain a sense of peacefulness and calm in the moment, which is not easy to do oftentimes, but if we can do that, then we can take a deep breath. Kind of, okay. And then just not react instinctively, but respond resourcefully to whatever situation we find ourselves in. And I'm sure most of the time that'll work out better for us. We won't say things that we'll regret later as an example. Oh yeah. I completely agree with you. And that is a wonderful message, you know, and um, we, we promote that a lot on our podcast and everything and saying, you know, you can't always control what other people do. You generally can't at all. <laughs> you yes. can control how you respond and how you personally react and what you personally do, you know, in response to those things. And one thing that we say is you, if you want yourself to kind of get upset about it, kind of like you were mentioning with, uh, you know, somebody, an aggressive driver that kind of you in some way and then you get mad and you do it to someone else in return then you're kind of just <laughs> yeah that's a conscious decision sense. right <laughs> people may argue it's unconscious because they're so angry from it but <laughs> you're making some sort of decision to kind of uh pass on that negativity onto the next person and you know and that's never it's never good for anybody so <laughs> but no. like you said if you have a general understanding and everything and you can see that oh well that's kind of interesting i wonder why he's acting that way it kind of frees you right it frees you from being caught up in that negativity right yes that's right yeah that and as i said it's not easy to do particularly in some circumstances and i know myself there are times when something happens i just react instinctively to it and then i realize later you know alan that really wasn't too smart I could have just taken a deep breath, step back, sometimes actually physically step back, take another deep breath and say, hmm, I wonder why he or she said that or just be peaceful and calm about it. And and that just can make such a huge difference. Yeah, <laughs> completely agree. Um, and, you know, it's funny that you mentioned that because we always talk about it if you manage your life in the the minutes the seconds of your life in the same way that you would manage money where if somebody you know say takes you know a, a minute of your life or takes you know negativity and puts it in to a minute of your life you wouldn't spend the rest of your time stewing and pursuing that person right and being angry about it which a lot of people do now if they were to take a dollar from you you know and you make you know x amount of dollars a day you wouldn't spend all your money to try to get that one dollar back you know which is kind of what people do emotionally when somebody takes time from them or you know and makes you know affects them in a negative light 
and people spend so much time you know being angry about it and then telling telling other people how angry they are (laughs) you know what i mean and they're so focused on that negative aspect that they kind of they can potentially lose their whole day over one upset driver or you know that they interacted with so i think your message is was great there um so now i'm curious so you'd recover you'd recovered and then you actually eventually went back to the trail and finished it out now when you got home and you were recovering from your accident did you ever come across a mentor that helped you find good from that kind of pain and that um (laughs) that situation that you had been in yes i did actually and i was really interested in uh people who been in traumatic situations and it turns out that um through the uh, speakers association to which i belong uh, about half a dozen of my fellow speakers had been in situations like that and i interviewed them and and they all said that basically the same thing they the situation was terrible it was awful it hurt it turned their life upside down but at some point they realized that they were going to find the good in their situation. And they all succeeded in their own way. That was really powerful for me. And I realized I can do the same thing. And then I also ran into a book by a guy named W. Mitchell, whom it turns out I had met in Crested Butte around 1974. Uh, He was the mayor of Crested Butte at some point. And uh, it turns out that Mitchell was involved in a horrific motorcycle accident in which he almost burned to death. And if that wasn't enough, he was in an airplane crash that left him a paraplegic. Now, if there's anybody on God's green earth that has the right to feel sorry for himself, it's Mitchell. But he didn't do that. And now Mitchell is a world-class motivational speaker so my mantra was mitchell had the grit and the determination to overcome these tremendous challenges and so do i and i would encourage listeners who have problems they don't know what to do with them they don't know how to respond to find somebody who might be able to help them not to tell them what to do exactly, but just to provide some measure of emotional support is that, that will greatly increase the likelihood that we will be able to get through our challenges too. That's wonderful. Yeah. So it doesn't have to be specifically, you know, word for word, right? An outline yeah. of how to recover from this specific thing. But the general consensus of how somebody over, you know, was faced with the challenge and they overcame it, right? Yes, that's right. I think also just the fact that some that Mitchell was able to overcome these just awful injuries that happened to him. Well, I, I'm not sure exactly how he did all that, but he did, and just the fact that he did suggests, well, I can do the same thing. It may not be the exact path that he used but i can do it if he did it i can do it (laughs) that's wonderful now talking about you saying that you can do it and you can go back and you can finish out your kind of your project that you had started 
you had resumed your hike the following year, but were you, there any concerns that you would become injured again? Or did you go alone, you know, at first? Or were you kind of cautious of that? Or were you just at 110% and ready to go right out of the gate again? <laughs> just curious. Yeah, I was uh, ready to go. <clears throat> and over the the intervening year, I had really come to terms with getting hurt. I think I'd learned a lot from that experience <clears throat> and my confidence was much, much greater, not in a sort of foolhardy way, but just a quiet confidence that I can do this. And when I got back on the trail, and as I mentioned earlier, got to the point where I was hurt, that was about 10 miles into the, the next year's part of the trail. I just felt, yep, I survived that. I'm not quite sure how, but I did. <clears throat> I think maybe there was some element of divine intercession in all this, uh, but I don't really know. But I just felt I can do this. And I started hiking and I was confident. I was careful. And it was uh, just a, a great experience. I, I just felt like I was, I was on top of the world. <laughs> That's funny. You mentioned being more careful this time around, huh? <laughs> yeah, my my uh, my wife and my mom particularly encouraged me to be more careful. <laughs> that is funny. Um, <laughs> so, after you had resumed hiking and finishing out the rest of the trail um, that you had started, now you're a little less than halfway there. Right. Um, what was the biggest mental challenge that you had to face on the second half of your journey? Mm -hmm. Well, it turns out that in central and northern California, the uh, the terrain has a lot of timber. So a lot of the walking is actually through trees uh, where there's not a whole lot of view out. And it And there were parts of that that were mentally challenging in the sense of, okay, I'm walking through trees and I'm walking past trees and didn't I just go past that tree over there? Am I walking around in a circle? <laughs> and just kind of to keep up the, the momentum, okay, just, I know there's not a whole lot of scenery right here, but it'll be better later on. And uh, I can just look out right now and enjoy the birds and the blue sky and, and all that stuff. And just just keeping my focus on enjoying the moment um, was was critical, and it, it took me a while just to kind of get into that uh, mental state. Plus, it turns out this was another low snow year in California, the, the really the heart of the drought, and many of the water sources uh, had dried up, and there were long distances between springs or little creeks where I could get water, and on one occasion, I ran out of water with actually a number of other hikers, there were maybe half a dozen of us, that went to this um, little creek to get water, and it was dry. So we were we were all out of water, and the next water was, uh, I think, about eight miles away. This was in the afternoon. It was hot, and it was really a slog to walk along thinking, can I last eight miles on no water at 100 degrees? And fortunately, we the lead person spied a little piece of white paper about the size of an index card <clears throat> sitting on a tree by the side of the trail and scrawled on the, 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 the little piece of paper was water with an arrow. 
that was all the information. So we looked at the card and thought, well, let's go. So we scrambled up and immediately got to a road, but then there was no sign. So we thought, well, let's walk downhill and maybe there's water in the creek down here. And we found water. It was, oh, such a blessing. We just sat and drank water for about two hours because we were so thirsty. So, <laughs> so dry trail was was really, really a big a big challenge. And then when I got into uh, Oregon after 1,627 miles in California, I made, made it into Oregon. And I spent two wonderful nights staying in Ashland, Oregon, the southern part of the state, where I bought food for the rest of Oregon. And during the two nights I was there, there were these just tremendous electrical storms. And I remember one night, sitting in a restaurant and the walls were shaking because of the concussion from the thunder. I didn't really think about what this might mean for me until I started hiking again. And I'd walked maybe an hour after hitchhiking back to the trail. And I saw a smoke plume back to the West from where I had come two days previously. Forest fire started by the lightning. I walked another hour maybe, and I saw another smoke plume off to the south, started by the lightning. And as I started hiking north up towards Crater Lake, I saw more smoke plumes. And there were dozens of fires in Northern California and Southern and Central Oregon started by this these electrical storms. And for about the next two weeks, I walked past forest fires and through smoke and uh, past uh, helicopters dropping water on planes, slurry bombers. It was really spooky. You know, <laughs> were they pretty close to the trail? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I could have. Uh, I could wave to the pilots. They were that close. Oh my goodness! And I, and <laughs> that is kind of a scary situation. Yeah. You usually get trapped in one of those situations. That's, that's right. And there was, I didn't really know, well, okay, so what would be the safest way forward? And it was not clear at all. So I, my tendency was just, well, I'll just keep on hiking and kind of see what happens. And it all worked out, but it was that spooky. I'll tell you that. No, so I'm I, curious, after you had experienced kind of that life and death situation, did it make these other situations kind of, did it kind of take the edge off of them? These other challenges that you face, such as the water or the, you know, yeah, high amount of wildfires? Yeah, it did. It, it was just able to remain calm and not panic in a situation where I really wasn't sure what I ought to do. Yeah, I could just sort of think, well, should I go forward, go backward, do something else? Well, I really don't know. I would think about the, where the fire was and where um, I was terrain-wise compared to the fire. Fires tend to like to burn uphill much more than they burn downhill. So I thought, well, if I'm uphill with the fire and I don't have a way to get out, this is not good. Um, and there were a few situations where I sort of by chance found myself in situations like that. And when I realized, oops, then boy, I just would hike as hard as I could, as fast as I could, to get out of that situation. And fortunately, they all worked out okay. Wow, well, that's wonderful. It's kind of a freeing experience in some ways, right? When you experience something like that. Yeah. 
other challenges kind of become easy because you've been through something harder, right? That's right. And I had a a sense of confidence that I knew what I was doing, or at least knew well enough what I was doing, that I I didn't worry about it, which was good. I just felt, well, okay, I'll keep my wits about me. I just make sure I pay attention to what's going on, the, the direction of the wind, the clouds, and all that stuff. And and it worked out. Now you'd kind of been touching on this already, but as you crossed each state line from California to Oregon to Washington, ultimately, what did it feel like as you kept crossing state borders on foot, you know, and it's probably got to be a lot of anticipation building up and <laughs> you yes. know, an accomplishment at the end, right? Or- yes. Yeah. When I crossed into Oregon, there was just a little sign on the tree that said California slash Oregon. And I thought, oh, man, this is so neat. It's Oregon's actually here. I hadn't been kind of unbeknownst to me, ended up walking south and I'm back in South Lake Tahoe or something like that. So it was great to be in Oregon. And even in spite of the fires and the dry conditions, uh, the trail in Oregon was just super, very well maintained, well marked and all that good stuff. So I could generally walk 25 miles a day in Oregon and not just be totally beat up physically. Um, But um, uh, in Northern Oregon, I just, I had this sort of unusual experience that um, I came to this uh, creek. This was in the, um, uh, one of the wilderness areas. I can't remember which one. It's called Russell Creek. And I, um, it was too far to jump across. So I, I was, uh, I sat down and there were three other hikers there. Two of them had just crossed and one had crossed back to the south and I took off my shoes and I asked them how the crossing was and they said oh it's real simple the bottom is sandy uh, just walk across in your bare feet so I took off my shoes and put my socks in my shoes and ordinarily I um, would tie the laces together and drape my socks uh, socks and shoes around my neck and then walk across with my hiking poles but I thought well this time I'll just throw my shoes across it was only about maybe 20 feet so I gave my shoes a big heave, and as soon as I did that, I realized the trajectory of the arc of the shoes was not a good one. Instead of being sort of a low, flat trajectory, it was a very steep trajectory. And as I watched the shoes, they went up, and to my horror, they came straight down in the creek, bobbed twice, and disappeared over the edge of a steep area. Oh, no way. He had no shoes halfway. I, I had no shoes <laughs> and no socks. And the, the really wonderful part of that is that two of the hikers that had just crossed, I, I could look at them as they were looking at me, and they, the look on their face was just priceless. It was, I can't believe that Alan just threw his shoes in the creek. <laughs> and, and there was a silence for a moment or two. And then I thought, well, now what do I do? I don't have any shoes. So I thought, well, I'll cross the creek and then I'll start hiking. So I crossed the creek and I started hiking for about 10 feet until the little stones on the trail just, they were so painful I had to stop. Okay, so now what do I do? So I asked my hiker pals if they had an extra pair of shoes they could lend me. Nope. I said, well, do you have a pair of camp shoes or something? 
And the, the woman, Miss Frizzle was her trail name, had a pair of size eight, uh, like croc knockoffs camp shoes. I wore size 11 and a half men's. Oh my goodness. So I said, well, okay, I'll try them. So I, I sat down and, and sort of scrunched the front of my foot into the little shoe thing that Miss Frizzle gave me. And my heel stuck out the back about three inches. And I tried the other one, same thing. And I thought, well, what do I have to lose? Let's try it. So I put on my pack and I started shuffling my feet down the trail. <laughs> it must have been just funny to watch. <laughs> and that lasted for maybe, gosh, I don't know, a mile. And that, But my foot kept coming out of the shoe. So then I thought, I know what I'll do. I've got some duct tape. I'll duct tape my feet into the shoes. So I did that, and it worked for a while, but then the duct tape failed, and then I was back to square one. So then it turns out there was a, when that happened, there was a couple of guys ahead of me, so I shuffled up there and asked them if they had some wine. And the idea was to just lash the the little croc shoe knockoff thing onto each foot. And they had some wine, and they gave it to me. They were very nice. And then I lashed the shoe onto my foot and I started walking and it worked okay for another mile maybe. And then the line came loose. So I stopped and I thought, okay, I'm going to tighten this up so tight that this shoe is not going to come off. And I did. And it didn't come off. But then unfortunately, my, my, I noticed my toes turned white. Well. And, and I realized I had essentially put a tourniquet on my foot. <laughs> and if I didn't take that off, I could get gangrene. So I took off the line and I'm sitting by the trail rather dejectedly wondering what to do next. And these three hikers come along. And the last of the hikers has a pair of what looked like about size 12 camp shoes on the back. And I said, stop, stop, stop. And they did. And I told him my story. And I asked the guy, Quinoa was his trail name, if I could borrow his camp shoes. And he said, sure. And he gave them to me. And he said, as he walked off with his two pals, I'll see you down the trail. And it just really is emblematic of the sweetness of other people in times like that. He just he'd never seen me before. He handed me his shoes and just said, I'll see you later. It was so sweet and wonderful. I put these camp shoes on and they worked. And I I could I could actually hike slowly and carefully in those camp shoes. And I ended up making about 15 miles um, just shuffling along until I got to a place called the Olali Lake Resort, which I, I knew from my maps. And I thought, wow, the Olali Lake Resort, they're going to have a big roaring fireplace in the lodge and I'll be able to use their phone and call like, I don't know, some delivery service and have a new pair of shoes air freighted to me. So I got to the lodge. Well, it turns out there wasn't a lodge. There was just a little shack with a couple of other buildings. And the woman said, we don't have any cell phone service here. We don't have any package delivery service. You can't do anything here to get a new pair of shoes. And I thought, well, what do I do? And she said, well, go back out on the, there's a gravel road over here. Go out and hike to, hitchhike to Oregon. And I thought she was 
being a joker. Well, and as I'm sitting there telling her my story, this guy who was fishing in the lake, Doug was his name, came by and said, you know what? I'm going to leave right now. I'll drop you in Oregon on my way back to Portland. And I, I, I'm kind of thinking, I don't even know where Oregon is, but that sounds good. <laughs> and I hopped in his car and he drove me to this little town, Oregon. I'm sorry, Detroit, Oregon, where I could order my shoes. And I got them. It was I know. All just because he tried to throw them across the river, huh? Yeah, it was complete <laughs> stupidity on my part. But to me, the, the lesson I learned from this is that when things happen, if I just can keep my wits about me and just keep making little decisions or sometimes big decisions, I can figure out a way to deal with this stuff. Decision, okay, I'll I'll try to walk. No, I couldn't do that. Well, I'll use Miss Frizzle's shoes. Well, that worked, but then it didn't work. Well, then I'll lash them. No, that didn't work. Oh, I found the camp shoes. Well, that did work. And it, it was just another great example of, of how we can respond to situations in our life that come up. They seem uh, intractable at the time, but we can deal with them if we keep our wits about us and just keep making little pieces of forward movement. And it worked out. How about that? So big goals are kind of accomplished by a series of smaller little victories, right? Whenever someone yeah. has a very big victory, they're kind of a bunch of little tiny victories. Right? Yes. Yeah, I think we, we often discount those little things. We're kind of looking for the big fix. And sometimes that works, but I think more often it's these little fixes, one after the other, really turn out to be big fixes in the end. Yeah, I mean, you listed, what, about nine or 12 ways that you tried to solve your problem, right, with your with yes. <laughs> your yeah. hiking boot problem, <laughs> which is kind of funny. That is a funny story, though, and I'm sorry, the hardship that you had to go through. <laughs> you know? Well, it was, <clears throat> it was all my own doing, so I had no one to blame but myself, but then... <laughs> But then blaming myself isn't really all that useful. It's, okay, what can I learn from this situation? And what I learned from is, is I'm going to go back. And what I did do subsequently on the trip is when I needed to ford a creek, I tied my shoes together, draped them around my neck, and then waded across some of the hiking poles. And I didn't have any problems after that. No, you just you'd been entering Washington right after that point, right? Yeah, that Washington was next. That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah. Now, now, was there anything different about that than the rest of the trail, or was it pretty similar? Yes. Yeah, it was different. Uh, <clears throat> Washington is more rugged. There's lots more up and downs in the Cascades. It uh, turns out that the weather started to deteriorate, and it was raining more, so that was a challenge, and you know, getting wet and cold. And it turns out that the first um, 150 miles of the trail didn't really have a good spot to resupply. So I had to carry food for 150 miles, which was a haul. <clears throat> but I but I was able to do that. And I just I just kept going forward and going forward because <clears throat> the rain was was a, a concern, particularly cold rain. But I really didn't want to be up there when it was snowing. And so that was. Mo <clears throat> motivating to me to just keep my forward progress and I did 
um, until <clears throat> I think it was, let's see, this would, would have been about September the 1st. So I'm getting close to Canada. I'm about 120 miles, trail miles away. So I'm, I can really feel that I'm going to get there. And at the end of this uh, day, it had been raining and I was wet and uh, cold. So I get to this uh, creek called Kennedy Creek in the Glacier Peak Wilderness. And I made this really boneheaded decision to set up my tent in this nice little flat spot near the creek. I didn't realize that if it rained, it, all that water off the hillside would run right down into my tent. Which, um, but uh, I made a mistake. I set up my tent, and then the night I woke up, and I found myself in a puddle of water. <laughs> and I was wet, and I was cold. I wasn't sure what to do. I I couldn't sleep well that night. And in the morning, I got up and decided, okay, do I change my uh, camp location and dry out during the day just to have a layover day, or do I keep going? And I don't know really in retrospect what the best situation would have been, but I started, I decided I'll keep going because I was hiking uphill for about five miles. And I thought I'm not going to get cold because I'm hiking uphill and I'll just warm up. Well, it turns out I didn't realize that there were <clears throat> blueberry bushes overhanging the trail and the, the rain from the previous night had wet these blueberry bushes. And when I'd walk past, I'd just get soaked with water, like every step. So I just kept getting wetter and wetter and wetter and colder and colder. And finally, I got to the point where I realized my fingers didn't work anymore. And you just think about this. If your fingers don't work, can you uh, do anything? Like, can you take your coat off? No. Can you untie your shoes? No. So I was, I got really antsy and then um it turns out that my uh thigh my thigh muscles started spasming uncontrollably i think they were so cold and then i started shivering just uncontrollably i just was right on that edge of major hypothermia but i couldn't the the trail was so steep at this point and it was really rocky and in this forest with down logs and everything, I, there's no place to set up my tent. So I, I keep going. And just as I'm about to go out of the forest into a kind of a meadow, I see this um, tent set up right next to the trail. And it looks like it was set up in about 25 seconds. Um, it, it was just like this jury rigged sort of thing. So I stopped. I said, Any, anybody home? And this female voice answered, yes, it's Mermaid. <laughs> oh, Mermaid, my name's Alan, and, and I'm really wet and cold, and I, I'm, I've got hypothermia. Can I come inside and snuggle with you and warm up? <laughs> After a few seconds of pause, she said, yeah, you, yeah, that's fine, but you got to leave all your wet stuff outside. Well... So I go over to the front of her tent. She unzips the door. I sit down and she takes off all my clothes and leaves them outside. Then she gets my pack and pulls out my sleeping clothes, dresses me, gets me inside my sleeping bag, and then I snuggle next to her. 
And all the while, she's she's just reassuring me that everything's going to be okay. It'll be all right. It'll be okay. It took me about, I don't know, at least two hours to stop shivering. And it took maybe another two hours before I was actually kind of warm. And mermaids saved my skin. And if you think about it, like your your listeners who are, fem- who are female, I mean, imagine this. Here's this male voice coming out of nowhere asking if this guy can come in and snuggle with you to warm up. <laughs> She didn't know who I was. I didn't know who she was. But it, it it again exemplifies all the kindness and the wonderful things that happened to me along the Pacific Crest Trail. So I spent about, I think, about four hours with Mermaid just getting warmed up. And finally, I got to the point where I thought, well, I can continue. Plus, the rain had stopped. So I, I put on all my wet clothes again and and uh, packed up my gear and thanked her profusely for her kindness and started hiking again. And I ended up hiking another 10 miles. And as I did, the storm went away, the sun came out. And by the time I got to this campsite that she told me about, I cooked dinner. And as I cooked, after I cooked the dinner, I held that pot of food in my hand and I thought, Thank you, Mermaid, for saving my life. I am so grateful for your kindness. And that just that's just a perfect example of what I've come to believe is that most the vast majority of people in the world are kind and wonderful. And if we approach them in a considerate and thoughtful way, they will be kind and wonderful to us too. And if we all lived our lives that way, the world would be a vastly different place. Hmm, that is a really good lesson. And yeah, that's everyone kind of has a power to change. You know what I mean? You said it was just like a quick, like 25 minute setup camp, right? It wasn't anything special, right? No, she, it turns out that she was hiking ahead of me the previous day and it, and, and the storm had come up and it was lightning where she was. And she wasn't going to go out in the meadow where she would be the tallest thing. So she's had to set up her <clears throat> camp in the forest. But it was full of downed trees and crap and branches. And so she was in an emergency situation when she set up her camp. And that's why it looked so poorly done. But that was a life and she made a life and death difference oh, yeah. in your life, though. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. And, and she, again, when I said, is anybody home, she could have stayed quiet. She could have just not done anything. And I would have said, hmm, that's interesting. Well, okay, I'll just keep hiking. And I don't know what I would have, would have done, really. Could have lost some fingers or, yeah. Yeah. Or worse. Or worse. Wow. That is wonderful. Um, so that kind of put it in your mind that most people are generally good, right? Absolutely. Yes. And if we, it starts with me, it, it's sort of, if I behave in a way that is kind and generous and thoughtful, then the vast majority of the time, other people are going to respond to me in a kind and gentle way. And even if they don't, I can't control what other people do, but I can control with what I do. So if I'm 
a reasonable person, if I come across with respect to other people, then that's mostly what I'm going to get in return. And that's what I found in my life. That's wonderful. Now, you kind of mentioned the time of the month and that's starting to get a little bit colder, right? Specifically, and I do know how cold it can get up north, you know, as you're heading north and everything. Um, Were you kind of in a race or like kind of in a time crunch and were you trying to beat winter essentially? Yeah. Yes. And, and that, that may not have uh, been the most uh, sort of the best way to approach the trail, because really the deal is getting to Canada wasn't the point of all this. It was enjoying and being present every moment of the way there. In other words, it was the journey, not the destination. Mm -hmm. That said though, there was a part of me that thought, I don't want to get stuck in a snowstorm because I'd read a story of a woman who got stuck in a snowstorm down in Southern Washington the previous year. And she was lucky to have survived that situation. So part of me uh, wanted to get through the Glacier Peak wilderness uh, to the other side of the Cascades, the drier side, because I thought if I could get to the drier side, where the likelihood of a big snow dump would be pretty minimal, then I'd feel okay. And at that time, I'd, by then I'd only have about 90 miles to go to Canada. Hmm. So, so there was a bit of a time crunch, right? And you're trying to kind of beat the storm so you don't end up like that? Yeah, but that was self-imposed. Was, <laughs> I see somebody who had a more um, a sense of personal awareness might not have felt like that. So it was kind of almost like a personality defect, I think for yours truly. <laughs> no, well, I mean, I think, you know, I don't, everybody wants to do, you know, everybody that does the things that they set their mind to, you know, always kind of have a way of saying, Oh yeah, I was being a little crazy or yeah. And most people wouldn't do that. But I think that's what kind of those types of people apart, right? It's not so much, it might not be seen as a defect so much as like, you know, to some, you know, it might be seen as kind of like a blessing as well, you know? Yeah. I I think for me, I was, I just didn't want to get stuck in a snowstorm. That's what that was about. And uh, so, so then when I, I, you know, got hiking again and I made it over to the drier side of the Cascades and I went down to resupply at this little town called Stahican, which is located on Lake Chelan. And the, the weather report was good for the next five days. And I was pretty confident that I would be able to make it to Canada. There wouldn't be a snow snowstorm and uh in fact uh that's what happened so i i was really pumped i hiked i think 28 miles a day for the last uh what it was four days and i got to the border on september the 8th of 2014 wow it was a just it and every hiker i've i've talked to has had the same experience that you get there and you think, wow, this is it. I, I'm done. There, there's kind of a sense of relief that maybe my feet won't hurt anymore. 
I can give them a break. But then again, uh, it's done. And I kind of don't want it to be done because it's been such a wonderful experience for me. And the journey was so powerful. I kind of, I don't want to give it up. But then on the other hand, it would sure be nice to go home and sleep in a bed for a while. <laughs> and eat uh, a food that's a little better than the trail variety. So I guess kind of like a bittersweet victory, huh? Yes. Yeah, it is. And I've had that experience on, on other of these long distance adventures that I've been on it. And, and I think that for me, my hike of the Pacific Crest trail was the most emotionally powerful. It was so, it was so sweet and so wonderful. And it, it, it was, um, it was something I remember almost on a daily basis right now. Hmm. You can't put price on uh, experiences, right? <laughs> no, no. But also that's interesting. You mentioned that because it's not really that expensive a proposition if you can uh, be fairly uh, careful about not staying in motels too often. If you can camp out pretty much every day, it's really not that expensive a deal. Hmm. The, and you don't throw your hiking boots in the river, right? No, that's not <laughs> too smart out. <laughs> No, that's not too smart. <laughs> no, I'm sure I had spoken to other people that have, I have a friend that's really adventure forward. So he did everything from mountain climbing to extreme mountain biking. And then um, now he sails on an old sailboat that he got from some guy from like a junkyard or something he fixed up. And he is very similar. You know, he says very similar things, you know, <laughs> and it's, and it's, you know, he, he loves the adventure, you know, and that's what, yeah. kind of what he says is, you know, is that you can't put a price on an experience you know and i was like huh that's kind of interesting yeah. i think you're right you know i think there's something I, there i read i read some years ago that when we die at the moment before our death will we think i should have spent more time at the office or should i have <laughs> spent time pursuing those wonderful dreams that i had but i never pursued and for me i am sure the answer will be, oh, I should have gone down to Patagonia with my wife right after we got married. Darn it, we didn't do that. I wish I would have, rather than spending another day at the office. It's kind of a scary, you know, for me, you know, it kind of hits me, you know, it's kind of a scary thing sometimes for a lot of people, you know. Because, um, you know, and that, you know, if you ever are kind of feeling tired or just, oh, I don't feel like doing that experience for today, you know, I guess that is a good thing to look back on and go, oh, oh my goodness, I could die tomorrow. <laughs> you know, I would not want to be in a situation where I have any regrets, right? Yeah. Well, sure. Doing, getting out there can be scary, no doubt about it. But I think for mo most of the time, the vast majority of the time, at least in my experience and people to whom I've spoken, they're happy they did these things and they grow as a consequence. Mm -hmm. And the, I think there's a saying and I might be butchering it, but I've heard it and it's goes something like um, the fear of risk taking weighs pounds, but the um, fear of uh, regret weighs. 
Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? See it's that. something along those lines where, you know, if you have, or, you know, the potential for regret, you know, is gosh, I couldn't imagine, you know, <laughs> I think it does weigh a lot more heavier than the fear of taking a, a risk or many risks like you did in your journey. Right. <laughs> sure. Sure. Um, so now this is probably not your last one. You've already alluded to that, your last adventure, right? But it was probably one of your most memorable. Are you going to be going on any other um, expeditions like this in the future? Absolutely. Yes. On May 26th, my wife, Bessie, and I are going to fly to Seattle. Then we're going to get on a shuttle up to Anacortis, a little bird on the ocean. And the next day, on May 27th, we're going to start biking east on the northern tier cycling route. And we're going to arrive in Bar Harbor, Maine, roughly on August the 4th. A 4,200-mile bike trip. Oh, my goodness. Yeehaw. (laughs) Well, that'll be wonderful, though, if you get to spend the time with your wife and everything, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, she retired this last August, and so now she has... Plenty of unstructured time. She loves to bike. She's really the bike expert in the family. Uh, she waits for me as I'm huffing and puffing up the hill. She waits <laughs> at the top. <laughs> she, it's, it'll be a wonderful experience, and we will meet all kinds of neat people. We'll have all kinds of neat encounters that we can't even dream of right now. And we'll look back upon our trip really fondly. It'll be great. That's wonderful. Well, um, thanks for coming back and uh, sharing your experiences more in depth on the podcast, Ellen. Uh, the last one, you know, was a hit and you know, we had a lot of viewers and everything and listeners. And I invite anybody to, that has listened to this podcast to check out Ellen's work, his book. And um, if you would like, just, yeah, go ahead and say your your websites and your books and everything and you know what you're planning on doing in the future and to keep everyone aware sure oh i have several things going on i have a website for my long distance adventures biking and cycling and uh, hiking trips so that website is long distance adventures plural.com and i have posted a number of my journals on there that the viewers can buy Then I have another website more for my speaking business. That's alantcarpenter.com. And I have a blog on that with uh, interesting health-related items that I post every every other week on average. And also, I forgot to mention this summer when my wife and I are biking across the country, we'll uh, post on longdistanceadventures.com. So, Folks can follow us and see what that adventure is all about. And then finally, I'm uh, working on a book. The title is Choose Better, Live Better. And I hope to have a uh, at least a copy that I can send out to some people as a pre-publication version by the time we go on our trip in May. And then hopefully get that out for officially into the world in early September of this year. That's wonderful. Well, you know, it's funny, writing a book is kind of similar to these long hikes, huh? It is, <laughs> yes. I didn't quite grasp that when I first th- thought of writing a book. 
it's definitely a journey and it, it has involved lots of ups and downs and backwards and forwards. But I think the book will be very helpful to many people who want to rejuvenate their life and move down the path to lifelong health and well-being. That's wonderful. Well, Ellen, like as always, it was great to have you and it's great catching up with you and everything. And you know, I learned a lot more from your journey than um what I had originally heard in your 20 minute, you know. <laughs> I was a kind of like a speech or expose that you did for the Rotary Club right. of Arvana. And so I learned a lot more about your journey as well. So thank you for that. And on behalf of all of our listeners and everything, thanks for joining us. And hey, I hope you enjoy your Valentine's Day. <laughs> Thank you, Robert. I appreciate it. Happy day. Yeah, wonderful. Have a great day.